You're listening to the Relationship-Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. So before we get started with the show, if you really like the GTKY concept of connections before content, but you thought to yourself, where do I get those good questions at? And you're thinking, well, I'm still doing virtual teaching versus in-person teaching, and I just want to connect with my kids, but I'm not sure what questions to ask. What we've done for you is created a free resource of 25 GTKY questions that you can immediately download and go back into your virtual setting or your in-person classroom setting to make a difference of getting to know your students before you dive into the content. All you have to do is head over to our website at rclfirst.com, sign up for our newsletter, and you will get immediate access to 25 GTKY questions that you can go back into the classroom and started putting connections before content. So let's get right back into today's episode. Hey, welcome back to today's show. On today's episode, I sit down and interview Dr. Kimberly McLeod, who has been an educator and has experience as a teacher, counselor, professor, administrator, and dean. Dr. McLeod is the immediate past president of the Texas Alliance of Black School Educators and the founding editor of the nationally peer-reviewed National Journal of Urban Education. She has written eight academic books, three children's books, and over 12 articles in various peer-reviewed journals. She currently serves as the dean for the College of Education and Human Services for Texas A&M University Commerce. This episode takes us into some deep conversations around implicit bias and the power of our words. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Welcome to the Relationship Center Learning Podcast, where we put relationships at the center of all learning. I am honored today to have a great colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Kimberly McLeod. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So we start every episode in the same way. We always uh, want to model connections before content, and we do that in what we call the GTKY format, just means get to know you. So Kim, I just got five simple questions for you. Easy number one, what's your favorite color? Purple. Purple. Okay, good to know that, right? Um, Would you consider yourself more a dog person or a cat person? A dog person, for Mm. sure. Oh, see, you're already, I I knew I already loved you, but right then and there, I'm a dog person. So number three, um, what is your favorite meal to cook? Oh, my favorite meal to cook. Gosh, there's so many. I think I like to cook baked chicken. It's one of my specialties. Okay. What is the last book that you read? Oh, the last book I read, Leaders Eat Last. Mm. Mm. Gonna have to check that one out. See, I'm picking your brain and getting some insight. Love it. And then the, the last question, really simple. If you had to pick one favorite artist that you could see in concert that you haven't seen, who would you want to see? I think I'd like to see Whitney Houston. Mm, That's a great one. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Five simple questions just to get to know me a little bit better, Kim. Go ahead. Simple questions. Tell me 
your favorite moment in your childhood? Ooh, favorite moment in my childhood is I, one of them. I just remember field day. I loved field day at elementary. You remember what I'm talking about? Yeah. Where we could where we could do we did running sack races. There was one where we threw an airplane and just just collecting those ribbons and the excitement of that day. Field day. I loved it. Oh, you like that energy and that freedom. Oh, I love competing and I love winning something too. Tell me as an adult, what was one of your most momentous paradigm shifts that opened a new realm of understanding into something? Holy cow, this work right here, what we were just talking about. Wow. I think the biggest paradigm shift is I was, I always tell people my DNA is D stands for discipline. But I taught science, but I didn't realize that I had an RNA that stood for relationships. And I think that, you know, when Jim Jim Walsh asked me, how did you flip? I said, hey, Jim, I didn't flip. I started calling new plays. The transformation in my mind opened up to realize I'm not right. My plays are unsuccessful with exclusionary consequences and the lack of making connections and, you know, relationships with these kids. That was the biggest awakening my brain has ever experienced, other than this, the personal reflection of just reflecting in life. Yeah, it was, it was a great question. So based upon that, my question for is, um, before you had that paradigm shift, what do you, what do you feel a broken relationship feels like to a student when mm. a teacher is unaware? It, it feels like if it's broken, that means I'm hoping we had something, right? And so if it's broken... I've had that multiple times, particularly with a kid that I'm still in love with right now at 20 years old. And I met him when he was 10 in sixth grade or 11. Um, when we have that fractured moments, it hurts. It, it, it feels ugly. Like you didn't, you didn't care to be, you never cared to me to begin with. And I think that that, 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 that lack of, of feeling and connection immediately zaps that feeling of caring and value and appreciation for anything. It's like we always say, it's like if you tipped over all the buckets in the relationship of not, anything that we did before, they all come tipping over. And last question. Tell me, who was that kid? What was that moment? That one kid that almost got away, but you grabbed him back. Mm, God. And you liberated him. Who was that kid? Uh, Kenneth, the same kid. Um, I will tell you, God's got a plan for this young man and I. I, there was multiple moments in seventh grade. He had an assault bodily injury charge, and I rode in a police car to ride with him down there. And that was probably one of the hardest things to go through because I cared so much about him and to watch him go into the system. But the biggest one, Kim, is, is was that was in seventh grade. In eighth grade, he had made uh, somewhat of a transformation after the DAP placements came back. And he was so excited that he was going to finish eighth grade. And so as we're piloting restorative practices, I'm looping up with these kids. So I'm, I'm daddy disciplined, but dad for, for a lot of these 300 kids. But I will tell you, in eighth grade, he came and said, Mr. Curtis, man, can you believe it? They had gone to an eighth grade class meeting and he had said, I made it. And he had a, like a flyer that we're having eighth grade graduation. And, and one of the things we did from Ed White to Roosevelt was they actually do a bridge crossing ceremony where we take the kids over to Roosevelt and they actually have a wooden bid, a bridge, Kim. And the middle school principal stands on one side and the high school principal stands on the other and he shakes their hands as welcoming the high school. Symbolically, it's fantastic. And he was so excited and he was like, Mr. Curtis, um, I really, really want to look sharp. We got athletic banquet and everything. And 
he said, do you have like a sports coat or a jacket? And I said, oh, brother, you're bigger than me. He's an eighth grader, bigger than me. And I said, I, I can't even give you a hand me up because I don't have anything big. And so um, we had tried to go through our family specialist to try to get something. And then at one point, you could come in every week and he'd be like, knocking on my door to get anything. And I'm like, not yet. And so I had a relationship with his mom. I had taken him to get haircuts and stuff. And I'd taken him off campus and, you know, the stuff you're not supposed to do. And uh, eventually I called mom and I said, hey, can I just take him and go get him? And she was like, yeah, Mr. Curtis, just, you know, get him back. And I was like, absolutely. So I said, hey guys, it was like nine o'clock in the morning. And we ran over to a, a men's clothing store here in San Antonio. And we went in there and I said, all right, let's just get him a sports coat, whatever. And he's putting them on. And I would tell you, Kim, as he was putting them on, he's standing in front of this mirror and he's like oh man look at me right <laughs> and he was like man I look good Mr. Curtis and I was just like oh my god right I'm looking at my watch we got to get back to campus right and I will tell you and this is this is a long answer but this is a great story he um he puts the coat on and then he looks in the mirror and I catch a glimpse and I truly mean this I catch a glimpse and he sees himself but I see him see himself differently oh wow that's it. When you said, when did you grab? Right. Oh. And I, I kind of like, and it was a fleeting moment, but I caught it and I saw this look on him's face like, damn, look at, like I look different. Right. And I looked at the salesman and I said, uh, I said, Hey man, why don't we just make it a whole suit? And he turns around and he goes, really? And I said, absolutely. And so we get the suit. He was like, and the salesman, of course, he's seeing something. He's like, we need some shoes, Mr. Curtis. Absolutely. Let's get some shoes. Let's get a belt. And he's like, how about a bow tie? Let's get a bow tie, everything. Right. And so we get my young man hooked up. We go up to the register, you know, and they're putting it in the men's bags. You know how they do it, the men's clothes. And and we're at the register and he's looking at it ringed up. And he's like, Mr. Curtis, um, I can't pay you back for this. I said, brother, look, we have been together for three years. I said, um, I don't need you to pay it back. I need you to pay it forward. I said, Kenneth, you are leaving me here. And I have no idea what high school is going to bring to you or the choices. I just know that it scares the crap out of me that I will not be there. And if I could ask you to just do one thing for me, it's just pay it forward. Go to high school, be the best person that you can. I'm not expecting you to be perfect and all this stuff. Well, we're still waiting in line because it's taking a while for them to do everything. And he throws out a question in front of all these people. Why did you ride in the police car that one day? And I'm like, TMI? Like, what are we doing, right? We're at the register. And he's like, and I said, shh. And I said, brother, um, why did I ride in a police car that day? I said, Kenneth, when I met you in sixth grade, I was all in. I said, when I when you got arrested, I was all in. You're graduating from eighth grade. I'm all in. And he looked at me, he said, I've never had anyone be all in on me. Yes. And that young man, now 20 years old, with a year old baby, right? People look at us crazy when you have this big black kid and me and we're at lunch or something and they're just like, and he calls me dad. And I will tell you, I'm gonna add one more value to this story because I wanna make it very personal. Him and I have had our headbutt moments and he has worked for me in this work and he's done some trainings, Kim, but I'm, I'm gonna own it. I think I, I chose the wrong path. When I was guiding him, I thought I needed to be, de- I, I thought I needed to be boss and like mentor. And the reason I say that is, is when he would do things wrong, I'd rip his ass, you know, and I would lecture him and get on him and chew on him. And, but it would put such a separation in our relationships when I would take that approach with him because he wasn't responding to that. 
but yet I didn't, I was relentless on how I was going to chew on him. And then one day he called me and I was in the middle of a course, typically lecturing him or whatever. And he, he broke me, Kim, about six weeks ago. He said, why do you always have to be like this? He said, can't you realize, I just want you to be the dad I never had. If you will be the dad I need, I, I've always wanted, I promise you, I will not let you down. I'll be the son you need me to be. Oh my goodness. Kim, oh my I, I tell you, I was standing in my closet on the phone with him. And as much as I love to talk, I was speechless. And I will tell you, that was a God moment because God was like, what you going to do now? And I was like, okay. I said, I will try to do better. Mm-hmm. And I went to meet him and I've helped him with his taxes and I helped him with his court papers. He had some court things going on. And when I talked to him, Ken, the first five or six times, I had to take deep breaths and remind myself, remember, you're just being dad. And I can tell you six weeks later, I now, it has totally transformed our relationship. I love him unconditionally. I don't yell at him anymore. Uh, in fact, I don't say, I don't do anything. He sent me a text on Father's Day. And then the other day he called me and he said, hey, he was so upset on Friday. And when he calls me, I don't raise my voice anymore. I don't say anything. Any, you know what I mean? I just, I just talked to him. And he sent me this text and I'm going to read it to you. This was Monday. Hey, good morning, dad. Uh, just texting to say, I'm really thankful for you. I sometimes crave our conversations because it seems you are my peace when I'm upset. And usually no matter how tough it is for me to see better things in life, when I get that way, it's you forever finding ways to help me pass them. And I couldn't ask for anything else. Just had to text that text that this morning and let you know that I love you, Pops. Stay blessed. Oh my goodness. So you talk about relationships. This was a kid that I suspended and put in detention and sent his butt home and went nose to nose and toes to toes with, but I can't let go. I cannot let go of him there. He has it. And, and, and I tell him, just don't let your circumstances define who you are. Forget what, Forget your poverty mindset. Forget all the things that what black people have told you you could be or do. You are better than this. And I will tell you, Kim, when he comes to our trainings and when he speaks, I had a three-day training in Houston. Wow, this is a long answer to this question. Sorry, you got me on the soapbox. <laughs> I took him to a three-day training in Houston. Um, and on day two, at the end of day two, he had to leave. And on day three, one of these educators who had come from like six other states away to come to this training said, hey, where's Kenneth? And I said, oh, ma'am, he had to go back. And she said, I just wanted to tell him if I wouldn't have even known any of his background, you know, him being arrested, the discipline issues, I would have never guessed that about him. And she said, and she started saying like, he is profound, he has wisdom. And I said, stop. And she said, what? I called him on the phone. I said, ma'am, he hears this from me all the time. He needs to hear this from you. And so I put him on the phone with him. And she was talking to him for like 10 minutes. And when she got off the phone with him, I said, thank you. I tell him, when, how many times when you come to work with us, people tell you, you are so smart and you bring so much value to them. And, and, I, and that's what I'm trying to instill in him, Kim, is, is that's what people see. People will see you if you will make those right choices and use those right voices, right? So I'm, I'm, he's a work in progress, but I will tell you that that, is, that was the moment and I have never been able to let go since. You know, Kevin, I think what's so 
to me profound about that relationship you have with him and the growth you had to achieve in order to be who he needed you to be, you had to grow yourself to another level, is this. Our kids need to be restored, not when not broken down. They don't need to be rebuilt. They need to be, what they have is already good. We just need to help them get to that next level. And when they, when they have failed and they messed up, they know they've messed up. They don't need to be beat up about it. They already are beating themselves up about it. What they need is hope. They need light. They need support. They need guidance. They need that voice of reason that will come into their space and give them peace. They already have enough trauma and disruption. Hmm. And coming hard at them is not what our students need to be successful. What Kenneth needed is what every single student we serve needs. They need someone who can bring peace into their world and realize when they make mistakes, it's not because they wanted to, it's because of some of the garbage they've been carrying around that they don't know how to take out and dump. And if we don't see that garbage, we will think something is wrong with them instead of something with, is wrong with what has been put in them. Mm. Dysfunctional belief systems, dysfunctional thoughts and behaviors, those things we can change and we're not going to change them by beating it out of them. Mm, no, well said. By restoring who they so, were to be. Yeah. So what's interesting of when you just said that the light bulb came on to me, I'm like, I'm literally preaching and te- teaching and modeling this work. And I wasn't modeling it in my own relationship with him. And so that's what you just like the light just came on when you said that. And uh, I, I did a student interview the other day and we talked about why students sometimes don't acknowledge when they do things wrong or, or tell things, you know, admit things. And she said, it's because we don't trust you. And what was interesting, Kim, is, is we were at a Chipotle having lunch, Kenneth and I, one day after going to get his driver's license and stuff. And we we're sitting there and he, he's he like out of blue. He was like, hey, I really want to stop smoking marijuana. And I was like, OK, like, OK. And then out of nowhere, he said, uh, you know, Mr. Curtis, when you send me on these trainings, you'd be gone all week. We'd be in Dallas Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I said, yeah. He said, um, he said, if I'm going to be real, he said, I used to come home early and give you some BS excuse because I needed to come home and smoke because I wouldn't take it with me, but I, I needed to come home. And I, I, and I didn't judge him. I was like, well, that's good to know because I knew they were BS excuses and I was calling you out on those, but I was getting mad at him, right? Like, what do you mean this? But I left that lunch day, that day so fulfilled that he trusted me now. And that's what I'm saying. He, he never would have told boss, Mr. Curtis, that, but he told dad that day because he, 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 he finally felt like he could trust me. And I will tell you, all of those light bulbs, Kim, are coming on because in the classroom, that's why some t- students won't admit to anything that they do wrong. Or you, you'd be like, I caught you red-handed. They're like, it wasn't me. It's like Shaggy, right? And you're less like, what are you talking about? And because they don't trust, that they don't know what you'll do with that information if they own it. Will you shame them? Will you, will you persecute them? Will you love them? The, the, the unknown factors. And so, yeah, I've been really thinking about that lately. The fact that when we don't trust and we don't have that communication, how we won't own our own stuff. And now at this point, he's just being brutally honest with me on everything. And I'm really, but I'm not judging him. 
and I'm not lecturing him. I'm loving him despite it. And we're, and we're figuring it out together. And I think that's what I've learned to appreciate. I just told him, I said, man, you need a full-time dad and I'm 50 and I'm doing all this stuff. And I said, I just don't know if I have this in me. And I was honest with him, but he actually is not withdrawing too much. It's just, and he, we said, we text, we just said by every, every three days, we need to hear from each other. That's our expectation. Every three days. I don't care if it's a text. I love you. How was your day? Um, those types of things. And so I would tell you that relationship that I met when this kid, when he was 11 years old to now nine years later at 20 is, was based on a situation in a classroom where he had cussed a teacher out. And it was our first restorative conversation, we'll call it. We didn't know what we were doing back then. And in there, the teacher told him, I have never had a student talk to me the way that you talked to me yesterday, Kenneth. And his arms were crossed. He was me mugging her. And she said, I went home yesterday and I couldn't even take care of my children properly because I was so devastated and hurt by what you had said to me. And she was so vulnerable and so honest with him, Kim, that you could just see he was cracking. And he was like, miss, miss. And she was like, let me finish. He was not disrespectful. And he was like, I am so sorry. I didn't, that's not what I meant to do. I was just angry because the, the, the assignment that you had given me, and this was English, uh, English language arts, was, was too hard for me and I couldn't figure it out. So when, when you asked me to come by and I hadn't done any, you were on me about my work. He said, that's why I just got mad at you. And then I threw the paper on the ground because I was like, well, then forget this. And I just went off on you. And after we heard, well, my dad's in prison. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I haven't had a dad in seven years and all these other things. And we just heard his life. At the end, I looked at the teacher, Miss Washington, and I said, uh, what kind of consequence do you want now? She said, hell, I want to take him home. I said, well, hell, you're going to have to beat me to it. And that was, that was the moment that we fell in love with him. But unfortunately, I couldn't get other teachers to see that because the hard part about restorative, when you do these repair harm, if you're not privy to that conversation and the power of that relationships and those connections and accountability, then you perceive it on the outside as the apology program or weak or unsupportive. And to me, it was profound. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the other piece that I'm, you know, sometimes people miss out on and they don't realize from their position is there's a power differential. There's a power differential between a teacher and a student, student a power differential between a, a parent and a child. And when you talk about building trust, not just for someone you don't know, even with your own children at the house, they may not complete, completely open up to you if that trust is not there. How can they trust that when they bear their soul to you, that you won't take that and use that against them? and make them feel more hurt than what they already feel or embarrassed or shamed. And that's that piece where that shift that I'm hearing you say you picked up, I couldn't beat him and cuss him out into a better person. I had to love him into a better person. Mm. I couldn't take those mistakes and say, look at what you did. You remember when you did this? Because our kids don't need us to beat them up. They don't even need us to feel sorry for them or cry for them. What they need is a tool, a skill set on how to overcome where they are to get to where they need to be. 
how can I teach you to grow past this? Because yes, it's going to hurt, but let me teach you how to take the hurt and keep going. Yes, I know you were frustrated. Yes, I know it was hard, but let me tell you something. When it feels like this, sometimes this is what you have to do to get by. And let me tell you how I know that because I went through it myself. Mm. And this is how I I overcame. Kids don't need our tears. They need us to teach them through. They don't need us to beat them up. (laughs) They need us to teach them how to survive the beat down they've already received. And so when you talk about relationships and that trust, I think what's most important is one, we realize where the power is. And two, we, we are able to relinquish that power to restore relationship to build up the foundation of a child and give them the power they need to live their life. We don't need the power. We need to transfer the power to them. Mm. And that's what you've done with Kenneth. You've transferred that power to him, not through retribution, but through restoration. Mm. Well said. Thank you. That's a great visual. Um, Wow, I feel like I'm your guest on this podcast, Kim. Like all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm, as I was talking, I'm like, wait a minute, she's supposed to be. Um, but no, I, that's why I love about this, Kim. I don't know where these conversations are going to go, but I do know that there's a couple things I do want to bring up yes. to people that are listeners. One, I know this, Kim. When I first met you, the work and you talk about the transformation and the light bulbs that came on. Yeah. The, 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 the first time I saw you at a training, I want to know how you got into that with culture and diversity and the bias, all of that. Just Can you kind of just take me through a little bit of a concise journey of how you got there and some of the epiphanies? But you left me. There's not many professional developments that I leave. And, and I tell people all this time, when people stick around to talk to me, I say, there's only been a handful of people that I've stuck around to say, I got to go meet this person. You were one of them. You know, I started this work when um, I was in the doctoral program on resiliency. How do we successfully rebound in spite of adverse situations? And the more I dug into what a resilient person is, how that's developed, what those characteristics are, what they look like, and then realize that everybody has it, but not everyone taps into that. It just was a natural fit when we talk about building culturally responsive classrooms, how we can build up a person while being Black or Hispanic, while English is not their first language, while they're low SES, low socioeconomic. We can build up a person as long as they're human and have a heartbeat, (laughs) regardless of their circumstance. That's what a resilient nature is. So part of this work was theory. The other part was my own life experience. Um, Being an African-American and a female, my father, I ended up in San Antonio because of military. My father was Air Force. We, We moved around a lot. So I've always had to adjust to a new environment. But not only that, because my, now my parents grew up very poor in a segregated South, but My father went to college. He was drafted in the war. He was a high-ranking officer in the military. He retired a colonel, flew C-5s. So many times when I was in school, I was the only African-American in my class. 
and being caught in two worlds, knowing what it feels like when people don't have relationships with you, um, when you are taught, talked to and taught differently than the peers. But I grew up thinking that was normal. I didn't even know that teachers had relationships with students because no one ever had a relationship with me. Mm. Then I began to teach that way. And that's when I hit a brick wall. Mm. And I'm saying that to say it, it was profound for me. But lastly, when I'm raising three African-American males that are going through the public school system and having to scrub off the residue of systemic racism, academic oppression, and what they're fighting just to have value and significance. I don't believe in beating up teachers. I want to be able to empower them to experience success. My kids have me, and I do the best I can when I recognize to, to tear that, I don't want to say ignorance down, but to break down those walls of dysfunctional thoughts and beliefs that they, I can see them trying to take root and say, wait a minute, who have you been talking to? But my kids have me for, for children who don't have parents who recognize that or may also still be dealing with their own trauma from life. They need educators who can see through that and break down those walls. And that's what this work is about. How do we prepare teachers to create the environments where students and teachers both can experience success. Mm. Okay. So I got to ask you this question. The, when I was at that, one of the trainings, I've seen you multiple times. You remember the activity, sorry, you do this all the time, but the activity where we write down on an index yeah. card, yeah. was it, was it stereotypical statements? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and how uncomfortable yeah. that was. Right. Because you were like, like you were very, I'm going to call it brutally honest, right? Because you had to give us some examples to take us there, right? Like um, uh, Asians are smart. Um, yeah. Jews um, save money. Yeah. African-Americans like watermelon. Like we had, and, and, and so you talk about when you're teaching us that work, all I remember was then you did something with the cars and then you taught us something from that, Correct. Yes. Yes. So can you just take us quickly through just like, because I would tell you that was not only uncomfortable, but then enlightening the way you kind of went full circle with that. Yeah. Well, let me say, first of all, when we talk about stereotypes, there is no such thing as a good stereotype. So even to say Asians are good in math or Blacks are great dancers or good athletes, there's no such thing as a good stereotype, period. And what we try to challenge the audience to do is differentiate the difference between culture, the power of what we do have to transform, and race, what we don't. And when I ask participants to show me through this card activity, writing it down, behave for me what you think culture is. And the responses that they gave me showed them that they are still stumbling over things that they can control and things that they cannot control, mixing up the differences between race and culture. But what's most important is when I read those cards back to them and I read those stereotypes back to them and I asked them, how did it make you feel hearing that? 
and they were saying angry and hurt and frustrated and defensive and sad and depressed and hopeless. And my response to them was this. What I read to you, you're old enough and mature enough to know that that is complete garbage. But when you have a developing brain that does not know completely the difference between what is real and what is not and what truth is and what fiction is based upon what someone is saying. And that if that made you feel that way, hearing it one time, imagine how a student feels when they believe that to be true and it's reinforced through different people, through different places in the environment, whether it's television, radio, books, whether their presence is there or not there, imagine how that makes them feel to think Asians are smart, but Blacks are lazy. So why should I even try? Imagine how that feels to them to be angry, hurt, depressed, and bringing that into the classroom. But then when we as educators don't recognize that anger as garbage, but we recognize it as something's wrong with you. You always upset. You know what? You don't know how to act. You don't belong in here. Instead of being able to say, you know what? Somebody didn't tell you how important and smart you really are to be able to say you can be black and brilliant at the same time. I have four college degrees, Kevin, a bachelor's, two masters and a doctorate. I got all of them before 30. I've written over 12 books, articles, speak all over the place. And people will tell me, if I didn't read your resume, I would not have believed that you were black. <laughs> and you know, and I, I know they're trying to give me a compliment. Now these are adults in my workshops. I know they're trying to give me a compliment but the unintended message is, I, I can't see people of color achieving that. You're the exception. There was a mayor in San Antonio who was African-American. Another teacher in one of my workshops said, you know, you ought to meet our mayor. You can't believe what she's accomplished and what she's been through and who she is. But she was the exception. And I don't have time to break people down in my workshop the way I really want to. Because the unintended message is, what she's trying to say is, look at this piece of success. So black people can do this. The unintended message is, but we don't expect them to, because that's the exception. And so my reply to her was, well, why can't that be the expectation? Why can't we just expect every African-American female in your class to one day be mayor? Why can't we expect that? Why, when we see it, we look at that as the exception, but all these other ones, I don't know what you're going to, what's going to happen with you or what you, why can't we just see black and brilliance at the same time, occupying the same space? Why do you have to separate that apart and be shocked when someone of color has brilliance at the same time while also being black? Well, wow. Uh Again, I'm using the emoji mind blown, right? But 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 I I was gonna have a follow-up question. I was gonna say, so what was something that you really took from that work that really stuck out? I think you just answered that question. 
You know, that's what really, if that's some of the messages that you're taking away from the work that you're doing, as you said, you don't, you, you, the time to be able to sit down and really break down those biases and beliefs and, and things that that person has built up would take way more time than one workshop. And yeah. And Kevin, I, I have to say that I, I know these people don't mean to cause me any harm. I'm a grown woman, though, so it's going to take a lot to cause me some harm, right? But for developing children and developing minds, that unintended message does cause harm, even if you have a good heart. You know, someone also said this to me in in a workshop, and I know they don't mean any harm. They say, you know what, Kimberly, I want you to know when I see you, I don't even see your color. I don't see color at all. I know that's a compliment. I know what she's trying to say is that I can see you without bias. But the unintended message is I don't want to see your color. And be, the, the message could be because there's something wrong with it. So let me pretend that I don't see it and I can just see you apart from being black. So I don't have to attach all of these other beliefs to that. So I'm just going to pretend that blackness doesn't exist. But I'm okay with my blackness. <laughs> I'm okay with you being able to see both of them at this. You don't have to pretend that it doesn't exist. It's right. I'm okay with it. And what I'm saying is this, Kevin, you can have a good heart, good intentions, but when you slice somebody with a knife, whether it's on purpose or accident, consciously or unconsciously, the same outcome is you're going to cause someone to bleed. And the question is, when you come in contact with our students, after they leave you, are they bleeding because of your ignorance, Mm. because of your unconsciousness, because of your well-meaning, well-intentioned words sliced them? And that's part of what this work is, those unintentional microaggressions, Mm. those messages that we don't realize that we're sending how do we begin to think differently? You know, last story, of a, a principal, he was a middle-aged white male principal, and he says, well, Kim, how do I experience success with children like yours, meaning my African-American boy sons? And I said, you know, I think if you could look at them as three boys and not three African-American boys that you have to treat different, just three boys who are anxious, autonomous, may challenge you at times, may have a lot more energy that you're used to seeing. If you could just look at them as just boys, you don't have to look at them differently because of race. And so that's the challenge. We don't have to look at children differently because they're poor or because English is not their first language, or because they have an accent, or because they learn differently, or because they're female. If we could just look at them as humans that are trying to find their space, their voice, their identity, and their value, we would experience 10 times more success. Mm, Wow. Well, and that's why I say, Kim, I... I've acknowledged there's not many workshops that I went to or professional developments where I left, I left impacted, um, reflecting 
as you said, it's, it's, we need to leave thinking and feeling this ways. And I will tell you, um, that, that is what stood out about every time from just you speaking to us in the district, attending your workshops and learning to know more about your work. I, I just, I was always inquisitive on just on wanting to understand more because I always left with so much to think about. Like you, you make the brain pop. I can't speak for everybody, but you made this brain pop and you did it. And that's what's so funny. I never really looked at whether you were black or not. I just looked at it as you were profound. And I knew, yes, she has a doctorate, but man, it wasn't even around the word doctorate. It was about what the color of your skin. The message that you brought to us was so eye-opening Nobody in my experience in education was opening my eyes to this, in which, which I say, I felt like having the foundation of what you were able to give me during the times I was able to experience your workshops and then coming into the restorative arena and understanding the school to prison pipeline and understanding some of the things that you were already discussing and seeing them, how they were come to fruition in the reality of these title one campuses that I was working in. It was like the lights all started coming on. And so, you know, I thank you for that foundation and for that awakening and just refreshing mindsets that I believe, and this is my opinion, I believe more educators need to hear your message. Because your message is profound and it's done by, it's done through research, but it's done through passion and the way that you unpack it, Kim, it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, it, it, it is challenging, but I find myself, the more I participate in your work, the more I want more of it. If, and this is just speaking for me, so I, you know, I, I know we'll we'll definitely make sure people know how to get a hold of you today, and the show's no, you know, at the end of the episode, how to reach out to you and learn more about you. But, but this is speaking from my heart. Like I am so blessed that I was able to experience, and I use that word, experience your work firsthand and your message, and then to get to know you as a person. On top of that, was was just a bonus. So thank you, thank you for for the work that you do. So let me ask you a question this. All right. So we'll talk a little bit about where you're currently at, but I know when you were leading Harris County Department of Education and you're leading a lot of different professional developments and you have a lot of people in the Houston area to be responsible for, and that's a big responsibility. Plus, um, you're leading TASPE and, and a lot of other things on your plate. I do not know how you get all of this done, plus leading three boys through uh, modern day life, but you continue to do it. And so as you're growing in this position and you see professional developments coming to your to your type of service center, what were some of the things as challenges that you felt like for professional development, what were some of the things for educators that you felt like it was a challenge to try to meet all of their needs from that position? How to meet educators' needs. I've, you know, Kevin, this is probably not gonna be the popular answer, but it's one that I firmly do believe is If you want to achieve equity and access and have ensure that not only every child has a seat at the table, but every child is fed, 
you can have all the PD in the world. You can be an expert in reading strategies, math, science, social studies, writing, whatever it is. But if you don't know how to build relationships, you're not going to experience 100% success. You're just not going to do it. And so I think when I look at PD and I look at people who are focused on one specific content or curricular area, I think that that skill has value. But if you don't deliver it in a way where students can receive that, then the value is minimized. It's almost when you teach, if the direct outcome is not learning, then what you did was not teaching, it was talking. And if you're talking, they're, they're tolerating you if they're not learning. And so a teacher told me in a workshop and she said, you know, I get it now. I had an 80% passage rate on my STAR exam. And she says the 20% that did not do well were all Hispanic males. She says, I was teaching to 80% of my class and I was talking to the other 20%. And you, what I'm saying is you can have students in the same classroom that will have two different experiences because we'll teach to those that are in our comfort zone. And for those that are outliers that we don't understand, that we don't get, that conflict with what is comfortable to us, we end up just talking with them. And if they get it, they get it. And if they don't, they don't. Some kids get to eat the loaf of bread. Some kids just get the aroma. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about PD, PD that does not focus on teaching how to deliver through relationships will be mediocre at best. Wow. I'm glad I asked. No, I'm glad. No, I don't. I wouldn't look for the popular. I was looking for the honest. And and I'm really inspired to hear that from you because you you have such a different perspective. You've been in senior leadership positions. You've been at the university level. You you've been at campus. You've seen so many different levels above my head. And so that's why I really wanted to bring you on the show and kind of pick your brain because I only have my lens and I may come in the districts and different size districts and see different things, but kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning of the show before we actually started recording is like, I, I see and hear us as educator leaders, and that could be any leadership level, but I hear we talking about the importance of relationships. And, right. I was, and I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm not acting like I didn't stand in their shoes. I know when I was a principal, did I know relationships were important? Absolutely. Did I feel the pressure of the standardized scores because I was principal at tax before we went to STAR in Texas? And so do I remember uh, from my superintendent when we'd sit in meetings, did I feel the pressure of like, hey, state accountability, Kevin, your name is on this test. You know, we hired you to help us be academically successful uh, along with these other things. I knew relationships are important, but at the end of the day, I knew my name and the school report and everything was going to be about accountability, discipline, attendance. Uh, and in fact, we even went to, um, you know, UIL academic points. It, was, it wasn't about whether we were going to be a seventh or eighth grade football championship. It was like UIL academics. It was everything was about that. So I, I know that pressure is real. And so my philosophy and thinking is, is where are we missing it in education on either valuing or holding relationships relationships accountable in our school systems to make a better difference. What's your thoughts on that? 
I don't think people realize the impact relationships have. When you have an 80, 90% pass rate, you feel that you're doing good. <laughs> Until you look at the demographic subsets and you look at those populations that you're leaving behind. And I can already tell you who they are. They're Black, they're boys, they're Latinos, they're your ESL, your low SES, and your special education. Everybody else, you're able to move those. And then when you look at your ISS and your OSS data across the state, number one is going to be African-Americans. Number two is males. And I'm saying that to say, how do you teach them if they're not in school? I mean, if my son misses 15 minutes of geometry and comes back, he's going to be lost. Imagine missing three days. I've had... Um, principals, well, districts that have called and have said, I have students who's, you know, there's a certain number of days a student has to be present in school. I have districts that have called and said that we have students who have been suspended longer past that, that, that daily attendance requirement in, in su suspensions. The problem is that the wheel is broken and we keep trying to mend it instead of just take it off and repair it and then put it back on. So when we talk about that pressure, yeah, it's gonna be pressure because we keep leaving this group behind and we leave them behind because we don't understand them, but we don't take the time to understand them. We don't take the time to come into that world, find out what they need, build that relation and give it to them. You know, it's, you know, you talked about Kenneth and how you helped him buy that suit. And while I'm gonna be honest, Kevin, while I appreciated and loved that story and it gave me chills, what I also hope that what you're doing now is you're teaching him, you know what? I'm gonna teach you how to buy your own suit. <laughs> Let me teach you how you can learn to raise and make money on your own. I'm gonna show you how to play a stock market. I'm gonna give you $100. I want you to turn it into 150. I mean, there's a way that we can teach our students if this is what you want, I'm gonna show you how to get there. I'm gonna give you this skill set. Another little boy I tried, you know, my family adopted that was in the foster care, like you, when you you go all in. And he's like, I want to go to Disneyland. I need a, I need $300. Will you give it to me? I said, no. But I bought him $100 worth of candy. I said, now you can go and sell it. <laughs> and so with that, he was learning how, what entrepreneurship meaning. And then once you, you make it, your three, 400, you give me my 100 back, right? We're teaching them accountability and responsibility. And what I'm saying is I understand that pressure but you're going to keep chasing that carrot until you stop and realize that you have a whole garden where you can plant seeds. <laughs> you don't have to chase the carrot, grow the carrot, grow, put these seeds in fertile ground and they will grow on their own. When you said after your workshop, I wanted more, I wanted to learn more. I felt charged. That's how all of our students should feel after they leave a classroom where they want more. Once you plant a seed in fertile ground, you don't have to do anything else. You give it some water, some sunshine, it's gonna grow on its own. Mm. And that's part of that work and that pressure is realizing you're always gonna have pressure, 
and experience marginal success if you keep putting typewriter parts into a computer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, because I always say sometimes we're stuck using uh, a 1990 playbook in 2020. You know, so same thing, operating system, same analogy. We're going there, right? We're using the wrong parts. And, you know, I, I was talking with a, a teacher yesterday, the one we were talking about earlier from Wagner. And um, we really got on this visual because, you know, we started talking about today's modern student. He was like, Kevin, I have some kids that drop out and graduate at 16 online. You know, I have other kids that do the traditional route. And we just talked about where some kids, like you mentioned, entrepreneurship. Some kids are, be, you know, be tw- by 21, they're developing their own company and selling it for millions, all these different things. Right. right. And so I, it, it made me this visual and I described it with him. I was like, Kim, it's like today's modern school route is all these highways and byways, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, some need to go to trade school, some need to get out early, some have a baby, some, you know, the, right. it, it, but but what school is, is like, no, 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 there's this one highway that we've been on for decades, and it's the route where everybody takes the SAT, everybody takes the ACT, everybody right. goes to four years of college, everybody is in the top, and, and it's like we're teaching and pushing with the pressure that 80%, let's just use a number, 80% of the population, we need to get down that highway because that's what, that's what success looks like in life. Right. And what I'm like is, is, but, but what about the kid that needs to exit over here? You know, that's why we start to see more alternative learning centers. And I'm not talking DAP. I'm just talking about alternative, the kids that need to get credits because they are having a baby or having to work because so, I feel like we're creating these formats and these exit ramps for different students at different places. And we're, we, we're doing it, but yet we're still trying to create one major highway where everybody's still funneled down the same way. And, and so one of the things I started to develop to help schools digest this concept is what I developed, what I call the three zones of learning. So I don't have the graphic in front of me, but just imagine, just imagine uh, almost like the Pepsi logo. So it's divided into thirds, right? In the middle, I put content. And what I tell them is content is the main reason that we are there to deliver, right? right. But, but I tell them content is also, and I call these three, these three zones like three cylinders of an engine. So what I tell them is content is our largest cylinder, but it's also the one that we're evaluated in the most by every state. And then underneath that is a smaller cylinder, and it's uh, correct. This is where behavior, discipline, um, attendance, uh, all the areas of ADA disproportionality, where we get you know all, where we get hit with disproportionality and all of our exclusionary consequences, the data, all of that's in that zone, and that's also the second area that we're hold accountable for. Then on the top of it, I say here's the connect zone, the connect cylinder, and I said it's important. But notice that we don't engage it because, as we were talking about earlier, there's no accountability for connections. There's no relationship report. Right. So my theory is, is that when I do go to that one campus that is accelerating past everybody else in the district, and I know you've seen those, one that's school that you're like, they're, they, they're clicking. They got it all going. My hypothesis is they're clicking on all three cylinders because despite what the state says, I'm going to make sure we have relationships engaged along with it. And so my theory is, is I, I want, 
and I'm not going to call TEA out for Texas. I want education leaders to acknowledge that there is a third zone or a third cylinder that needs to be engaged in education. And I don't know how, and I don't have the answers because I know there are things out there that do have some quantitative and qualitative data about relationships. I'm not saying the tool is out there yet, but I think we need to be working more towards holding our teachers and educator leaders accountable for connections because then what you just described for not only your children, but for all children, this is how education works. If you hold me accountable, I'm going to do it. If you're not going to hold me accountable, well, then I'm going to talk about it and I'm only going to do it when you walk in the room. And so that that's my whole theory is why we don't, why we preach but we say, oh, relationships are important. Don't forget to connect with every kid every day on the way on the faculty right. meeting or at the bottom of your email. But then when it really comes down to it, notice, oh, wait, is Star coming around? Uh, you better stop right. those relationships. Right. You better get the content. Right. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. You know, the click on all three. But that's, that's, that's why some people run and they fall short because you hit one or you hit two. But if you want to win, right, not just play, but you want the Super Bowl, you got to hit all three. And, and so what's a crazy is, is, and this is my opinion, if districts say, how do we get there? And I tell them this, simple, your principle. My, I, I can't, I don't have the data. This is just me, observations. When I go into districts, and I've been into hundreds of districts and lots of campuses, I always notice one common denominator. When the campus principal has two feet in, in this approach, then I always say this phrase, there's power and permission. I need that principal to stand up in front of the training, the staff where I'm there and say, look, I brought Kevin and his staff in here because I believe relationships are important and we're going to put our, we're going to put it into action. He is going to, his team is going to provide tools to help you build and sustain relationships. And I'm going to expect you to use them. Not only am I going to expect you to use them, I'm going to empower you to do them. Empower in permission. You're hearing it from me today. Don't get this mixed message. If you, if I walk into your room and you're not teaching, you're building relationships. That's exactly what I expect. And so when, when they engage that third, cylinder and they get permission to their staff and they empower them. And then there's an expectation to make that happen. Who can stop it? Because right. those three cylinders are engaged and now they're actually with an expectation. They're being held accountable where vice versa. Some districts will bring us in, Kim, and then they'll say, we want you to come back and coach. And I'm like, well, what am I looking for? And they're like, well, we kind of made this optional. And I'm like, uh, hey, 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 I appreciate the money. I don't want your money because what you just did is you potentially set us up to fail. And I'm not saying I need 100% success rate. I'm saying if you don't hold your teachers accountable for any type of relationships, then then we're just, you're, you're saying it's optional. And you know, at this point, you know as well as I do, if it's optional and the other things are required, optional will always be moved out of the way. Right. That's right. You know, Kevin, I think the other power, uh, the other side of the coin that gives your statement power is those principles that stand up also know how to model that. And I'm saying that because if a principal does not know how to build relationships with teachers, teachers will not build relationships with students. 
and I have come into buildings with principals and I've worked with them with, I'm telling you, who are frustrated and have good intentions. And I'm asking, how do you empower and elevate your teachers? Now, we expect them to do that with students, but how are you doing that with them? And one principal said, well, you know, I'll go to lunch with them and I'll take this and I'll do this. Who are you doing this with? And she had this epiphany with the ones that I like, with the ones that are always working with me. And those ones, those trouble, the teachers that are having the most trouble connecting, the most trouble in delivering and executing and managing behaviors, they don't build relationships with them. They talk about them. They put them on growth plans, but they don't build the relationship with them. It's the same with the students. The students who are having the most problems, we don't have relationships with them. We write them up. <laughs> we put them out the classroom. And so I'm saying if the building leader cannot do that with teachers, I will guarantee you teachers will not know how to do that with students. You start with the most difficult one you have in, in, on the campus and you start building the relationship right there. And in order to do that, you're going to have to take your own growth potential to another level. You're going to have to grow into the leader that they need you to be. Well said. So I think that echoes the other model that we always talk about. We say the tools to build relationships with kids, we call those classroom connections. But the adult connections are campus connections. And so we always tell them, as you're bringing us in, again, you know, I, I don't work. The hardest part came coming in as a consultant is when I don't work in the district, I can't hold these building campus building principals a- accountable, right? That's not my job. Somebody above them at right. senior leadership, but I can encourage, I can model. And what I, I, what I'm preaching and teaching to them is, is exactly what you said. So when we do 60 second relate breaks and two minute connections and 90 second spark plans with our kids, we also tell them, here's a way to do it with your staff. And we model that. And and, and here's an example to give you. I was in Dickinson ISD. And before Dickinson brought us in, they brought us in and they said, look, Kevin, we're going to bring you in district-wide. And, but we have a, we have a campus that went to one of your three-day trainings and we want you to just come visit them. We want you to, want you to see what's going on, a little show off. Um, In addition, we'd love for you to capture some video of it when you, and we, and I knew I was going to do their convocation speaker in, in August. And they said, we would love for you to take some of that video and bring it into the trainings and other things. I said, absolutely. So I show up to this campus, an elementary campus in Dickinson. Uh, I've never been to this campus. The counselor and assistant principal had went to my three-day training. That's that's all it had attended. And then I'm walking in. And you know, you know as well as I do, when you visit campuses, you know whether it's a dog and pony show. Right, you know, right. Hey, get the poster up. They're here. You know, or whatever. Right, like, right, yeah, right. no, I walked in and they were like, hey, glad to have you here. I went into classrooms and... I walked in and it was not a shock. They had never met me. I wasn't uncomfortable. And what they had done is they started doing these, um, you know, some people call them morning meetings, circles, conversations. But then what they were doing came is, is everybody was doing it and they were doing it in the first, at the very beginning of the day and getting it out of the way. So I'm coming in and I'm observing these conversations and they're powerful. And the teachers are having them use sentence stems and they're having a talking piece and all of these things. And as I went from third to fourth and multiple grade levels, 
they were so genuine and authentic. And I would ask kids like, so, you know, what do you love about these conversations? And they're like, I love learning about to know the peers in my classroom. I love leaving, getting to know the other kids. And I also get to know my teacher. So right. you hear this a lot of times. And then at the end I debriefed and I said, okay, I sat down with this assistant principal and I said, um, I'm going to be really direct here. How in the hell did this happen? Because not to say that you needed me, but y'all are killing it. And she started laughing. She said, no, Kevin, we didn't need you. Um, she said, we went to your three-day training. We heard about the 60-second, the two-minute, and the circle. And then we came back and decided to hybrid all three together. So we do a standing one-minute circle every morning. And I said, but how did you get this like uh, in integrated into your staff? And she said, we did it all at the summer, every time we came back together, it was all modeled by the teachers. Our principal learned it, we taught this, and then every faculty meeting and everything, we just used this as a model. And what the teachers loved is they saw the power of connections from them. They start to feel closer. Uh, our, our administrators were there, our counselors were there. Everybody was partaking in these connections. And then ultimately we realized it was a non-negotiable. We were gonna hold our teachers accountable. Every every class starts the day with a one minute standing circle, and and now it's April, and I asked them, what if we had to take this away? And they were like, oh no, 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 we we couldn't start our day without this now, and I just look at that because what you just talked about is it was modeled from the top, and they showed them the power of this and how to do this all with the staff. And then it just trickled down and then they held them accountable. And then the principal has that expectation. And then they didn't just stop. They used them all year long. So what you just described, I actually saw it in action and left, left floored. And really honest, I was like, they're going to put me out of business. Like they're, they're just, they are figuring this out on their own. And so, um, yeah. I, so when you said that, I'm, my mind started immediately clicking to that elementary. Mm -hmm. You know, you just planted the seed and the seed, it'll grow on its own. You can't jump into the, it's going to grow into its own and take its own life. Well, so I want to talk about what you're doing now. You you just had a you just had a change in in, in, in in jobs and you are planting seeds. It was crazy when you made that announcement. I kind of threw this out to you. My first year at college was at East Texas State back then. What? I don't know. Yeah, so that's why I, I thought I threw that out to you. But yeah, so I actually, when I left high school here in San Antonio, uh, I played a year of college football there. Um, I went up there and I'm just going to be brutally honest. It's like, I, I'm hoping it's like anything else. You show up on campus and you think you're a good athlete in your high school until you get there to other high schools or other high school and you're like, Maybe I'm not that fast. Maybe I'm not that big. So, um, yes, um, I went there uh, fall of uh, 1988. Um, I was a lion. Um, uh, actually went to like Sulphur Springs and did some observation of some schools and stuff out there. But I would tell you it, it was a long way to be away from home. College football uh, was a good year learned. I did not get to play. I was redshirted, but I learned a lot. And then I just came back to San Antonio. So I did spend one year there before it became uh, – Texas A&M Commerce. So I want I want people to know what 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 your drive is and where you're in the position, and then kind of like what we were talking about before the show. What are some things that you're excited about in this oh. new position and the work that you're doing? I want to share with people what your passion is right now. Oh my gosh, I love where I work now. I'm the dean for the uh, College of Education and Human Services at Texas A&M University Commerce. 
And first of all, we have an incredible president. I have an incredible provost. And they have given me so much support. Um, the president, almost before I joined, also said, look, I got a pot of money. Um, will you help me recruit students and get students to, to come to Commerce and here's some money to give them for scholarships? What about teachers who want to work on their master's and the doctorate? And I'm like, and you want me to, you're going to pay me to do this? <laughs> like, this is my job to help give people money to come to college? And um, and so that right there was like, okay, this is this is... This is magical. I mean, I get to make dreams come true for families. I get to just sprinkle that little bit of dust that they need to break generational poverty and give hope and opportunity and access. And then when I met the team, oh my gosh, we have faculty that are so dynamic. Um, I look at, and I know they're dynamic because of the graduates we produce. And our graduates are becoming superintendents and building leaders. And um, we have a nursing program. They're becoming nurse practitioners and frontline heroes. And, you know, every I'm putting on my LinkedIn and Facebook graduates, the governor has appointed on committees and another one that just became an, a superintendent and, and how we're creating new programs to be responsive to the community needs online, hybrid. You know, it's just... Being that beacon of hope to say, look, I have a degree waiting for you to carve your name on it. What are you waiting for? If this is what you want, let me help you get there. The, 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 the benefit of K-12 is this. If a child decides to go to college or not, we want them to walk away with so much academic confidence and preparation that they have a choice. If you don't go, it's not because you couldn't go, because you chose not to. Um, so, you know, my goal this first year, it's aggressive. I'm trying to raise a million dollars in external funding to help build more programs. One of them on a national level, I want to create a national center for race, equity, and cultural excellence. I want to create one for an urban and rural pipeline to develop leaders. I want one that focuses on teaching exceptional students, those that are learning different, gifted, autistic, dyslexic, those children that are outliers. I want to pre prepare professionals to reach those they're comfortable with and those that they need to learn more about. And lastly, um, I did this with TAPSI when I was president of the Texas Alliance of Black School Educators. We created a Texas Education Policy Institute. And for years, Kevin, we always get policy coming down to us and we do what it says that we have to do. Sometimes it works for our communities and sometimes it doesn't. But what I tell my organization is this, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> And we need to get our community off the menu. And in order to do that, we've got to have our seat at the table. So I needed to teach our members what policy is, how it's written, what governance is, how all of that plays into that first year of fellows. We have one of our fellows that was elected to the State Board of Education. She got into that seat. She is swinging and banging. I know that's not in the dictionary, so don't look it up. 
But she now from that position, she is opening the door for other people to help sit on these committees to write policy, to help decide what's in the best interest of our community and advisory. I had another one that got elected to the a Board of Education um, for A Leaf Independent School District, Darlene Bro. The other one was Aisha Davis. Now she is leading that district and ensuring they are being held accountable for what their student code of conduct looks like and what their what their scores mean and what has needs to be brought into the di- and having those voices at the table makes a difference Kevin mm. but we would not do be there if we did not plant the seed give it its water let the sunshine do what it's going to do and let the seed sprout on its own you know Shirley Chisholm says if they don't give you a seat at the table bring your folding chair <laughs> And we, but we had to build the table. And I'm saying that because in order to have a voice, you need to have education. Education is the key to social mobility. We did not do these things because we did not know how. Now that we know how, what are you going to do with what you have? Mm. You know, when you know better, you do better. And so that's the other piece I'm planning on bringing to the university is to help educators understand policy and governance. I want Texas A&M Commerce College of Education and Human Services to be the best training institution in the state of Texas for teachers, for principals, for administrators. And I can't wait to bring Kevin Curtis up there to talk to some of our prospective leaders. <laughs> well, wow. Uh, I'm there. Um, well, you, thank you. Wow. That was, that was powerful. You know, I, the one thing I can just interject with that, Kim, is, and, and I've had a few conversations about this, is how do we get this in front of like new teachers? Because I feel like how many districts would benefit if teachers could understand the power of relationships and just, but not just that, not just the fun, not like just the philosophy of it, but the practicality of it, right? Like what are tools that we can do this? Where are we going this? And particularly, you know, we're learning in the middle of this pandemic, how are we going to be able to continue this virtually, as you said earlier. And so I've had a passion and I've had couple of different requests. One from the University of North Texas in Denton, we had started a preliminary conversation with uh, Dr. Uh, Barbara, oh my God, last name, Paisy, Dr. Paisy. And I had had a conversation about possibly, you know, bringing me in and, and, and maybe starting to do something for undergraduates and things like that. But I, I know that there is a need for educators at a fundamental part of their career before they start launching into their career to get more realistic approaches from educators by educators. We always say our tools are built by educators for educators. And I feel like it's some things, and again, this is not a knock on universities, but I'm saying sometimes the stuff that universities do provide us is a lot of theory-based and, and not in practicality as far as the power of building relationships. So, I, I mean, I, whatever we can do to join forces to do that, to make a difference for campus leaders with the mindset that we're going through, Kim, I mean, you and I have talked for many years about being a powerful force and joining in some form or fashion. So just know I am always up for that. So then I do have a question and I'm, I'm just going to ask you, so are you still planning on doing any consulting or on, on, on with this in addition Yeah, so uh, I let the university know as I joined that there may be some days I'm going to take off work because I still want to make a deposit into school districts and systems. I still have three African-American boys in public school, but even if I didn't, 
at some point, Kevin, you get to the point where you are so sick and tired of underperformance, underachieving. You get tired of students who have potential and capability not getting to that table and not getting fed. In fact, being sent away hungry. And at some point, it's like, whether I had children in the public school system or not, if God has given me a sound mind and the tools and the position and the wisdom and the resources to give back, shame on me if I don't use the talent that he has given me to help somebody else, to help a district. And so, I mean, I'm committed to that Um, because it's not about me It's not about my children. It's about preparing a community to maximize its potential and walk into its destiny the way that you have with your life. For you to transition from public school to supporting yourself through your your business and growing it to have such a national impact, Kevin, that took courage to break away. I mean, it took courage, it took commitment, and it took sacrifice. But you walked into your destiny (laughs) and trying to help people see that there's a destiny, but to answer it, you can do it. You're an example on how it was done. And, you know, to give we, you, me, and other people, it's our time to light the path for the next generation to lead. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, so then my question is, can we just let people know how to get a hold of you? Do you want to talk about the website or what's the best way? Because I want them to know what you offer, not just not your not just your opportunities to come to 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 your amazing university and experience that, but also just to know about your work, a little bit more about the work that you do. Um, obviously, we'll we'll put some things, but what's the best way that you want people to know a little bit more about the work that you're doing in schools? So they can find me on my website at www.creativeenergy.co. And when you go to creativeenergy.co, you'll find some articles that I've written in Houston Style Magazine, some just real simple, easy reads. You'll see some of the books that I've written, some of the feedback from some of the workshops. I'm still actively, you know, on the circuit but a little bit more selective on where I speak just because of time. I don't, I can't spread myself as thin as I would like. And then you can find me on Twitter. My hashtag is McLeodKR, spelled M-C-L-E-O-D-K-R, M-C-L-E-O-D-K-R. You can reach me at any of those on the website as a phone number, email address, but if anyone has interest, wants to learn more or grow more, I'd be more than happy to uh, share my journey uh, with anyone that has interest. Thank you for allowing me to share that. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap up today, Kim, I will tell you, um, you have provided so much insight in so many different levels. Um, I was really looking forward when I saw we were going to get on the schedule finally to like, yes, I get to talk to Kim <laughs> because I I just love your point of view. You get to, you see at seats above me. And, and I say that with respect. In other words, your, your ability in the leading, the leadership positions that you've held, I, I respect them, but I also admire just the points of view that I love learning from other people that see things different 
And I, that's what I value and appreciate from you is the fact that we can align so much, but you can add so much value to the points of views where I believe listeners needed to hear today from just the, the reality of where we're at. That's what I'm really taking away today, Kim. I think your, your rawness and, and the reality of acknowledging the gaps and deficiencies that were out there, but again, your ability to like work hard and be passionate to close those gaps. And I I am honored to call you a friend and a colleague and just know that um, any opportunity that we can ever collaborate in the future, I am, I'm all on board. So whatever you need from me, I'm here. I really thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. And the feeling is absolutely mutual. So we're going to close every show the same way. We hope all of our listeners were to gather one idea, one strategy, one tool to go back to one classroom or one campus to make a difference for one teacher or for one student. We hope that you keep relationships first and we'll connect with you next time. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, the educator, the difference maker. Your time is valuable. I see time as an investment. And I want to thank you from the center of my heart for making it to the end of this episode. But please don't let this be the end of our relationship. If you have the same passion for putting relationships and connections at the center of all learning, then I need you to subscribe and share this podcast with other like-minded educators. It would be extremely helpful if you would leave a review or a comment on what you loved about the episode, or better yet, tell me what you want to hear about more in the future. This way, other educators that are searching for impactful podcasts can get a sense of what this show can offer them. You see, my hopes and prayers are that you were able to find one strategy or one idea that you could take back to one classroom to make a difference for one kid. Thanks for keeping relationships first, and we'll connect with you next time.